I'm a Muslim, a woman, and an immigrant. I voted for Trump. Asra Nomani published an opinion piece by that title in the Washington Post two days after the 2016 presidential election. When I decided to vote for Donald Trump, I did so privately. I went public with it two days later because I didn't feel like there was a nuanced conversation being had about why people voted for Donald Trump. Not surprisingly, though, after what was probably the most vitriolic election cycle in recent U.S. memory, nuanced conversation is not what she got. It is so grueling nowadays to own your vote publicly in conversation. And I know it happens on all sides, like from the right to the left, judgment and criticism and really vulgarity also. I've been called so many cuss words now by my fellow liberals on the left, that it matches anything that they say is being flung at them from the right. Welcome to the listening tour. We all know Azra's story, the lost friends, the family dinners, the virtual shouting matches on social media, the actual shouting matches in the press. But we all have friends and neighbors and family that we cared for long before we knew about their politics. And now we love them and respect them in spite of their politics, because we know they are more than their vote. But what about all the people we don't know? On this podcast, you'll find the personal stories of U.S. voters that led them to vote however they did on November 8, 2016. Not their politics, but their stories. It's too easy to dismiss people we know nothing about. The listening tour is a chance to exercise our ears and our empathy. You don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to listen. I'm your host, Phoebe Zimmerman. Each episode of the listening tour will include the stories of at least two varied American viewpoints. Republican, Democrat, third-party voter, libertarian, those who didn't vote, anyone willing to engage in a nuanced conversation will get a chance to be heard. Fittingly, our first episode starts with Asra Nomani, Very different from the political explanation she provided for the Washington Post, her personal story gives us a glimpse into the lifetime of experiences that shaped her 2016 decision. My name is Asra Nomani. I am a 51-year-old single mother. I was born in Bombay, India. I came to the United States as a four-year-old. I didn't know any English. I learned English reading Nancy Drew, and she became my best friend. I grew up then in Morgantown, West Virginia, and I'm the daughter of a professor, and my mother was a boutique owner, a small business owner. So I really got a window growing up into this dynamic and phenomena that people call rural America. I loved growing up in West Virginia. I got a real sense of the heartland of America, I believe, and I thrived in that space. Azra grew up to be a journalist, living and working in Washington, D.C. But she says global expressions of her faith have always deeply affected her path and her choices. When I 
pondered the issue of what I wanted the next four years to look like, the one big issue that really weighed heavily on my mind was the issue of Islamic extremism. I'm Muslim. I was born into a conservative Muslim family, and I have seen how ideology radicalizes. I lost my dear friend and colleague from the Wall Street Journal, Danny Pearl, to the worst expression of my faith. I met Danny Pearl as a reporter in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal during the Clinton administration, and he became my best friend and pal in the newsroom. We uh, connected over playing beach volleyball behind the Lincoln Memorial and, and going to the bars and the clubs at, in Adams Morgan. It was an ordinary life, you know, of young professionals in D.C. And then 9-11 just became this, like, shock, you know, of, of a sort that I could never have imagined. We both ended up in Pakistan, and I fell in love. I rented a house in Karachi, and Danny and his wife, Marianne, came to visit me one day. It was um, on January 23rd, 2002, then, that he left my house for this interview, and he didn't come back. So for five weeks, we searched for Danny, and in those weeks, I learned that the men who had dropped off the photos that showed that Danny was alive had done so at a mosque. I was just awakened as a Muslim and as a journalist and as a human being to the fact that we needed to tackle this ideological problem. So that became my life mission, and... Fifteen years after the 9-11 attacks, I believe that we're still doing a tap dance on this issue of ideology. A real aha moment came when the bloody massacre occurred in Orlando, Florida. And, and what we got was another you know, dramatic tweet from Donald Trump, but one that spoke to a, a, a passion of mine. And, and he said, you know, that uh, President Obama needed to call out Islamic extremism. And I, and I agreed. And then through the election, when I saw the um, details about the gifts by the governments of Qatar and Saudi Arabia to the Clinton Foundation, that was a real turnoff to me on, on sort of the Clinton um, enterprise. Asra says despite identifying as a liberal, she wasn't put off by Donald Trump. As a journalist, she knew his type. When Donald Trump was putting forward a lot of the bluster and rhetoric of his campaign, I really heard it from my years as a journalist for so many years, you know, seeing just deals that were never going to end up like they started, but um, that dynamic was part of the negotiation. And I, like a lot of Americans, took it with a grain of salt. For Asra, Islamic extremism and rising health care costs outweighed the bombast. As a just human being and as a single mother struggling like a lot of people to make ends meet, the issues of the economy had just failed me during the eight years of the Obama administration. Obamacare, my deductibles went so high, I ended up not being able to afford the health insurance program through Obamacare. So right now, for example, I have to weigh whether to pay the penalty or pay these high premiums that I can't afford. And so I don't have any illusions that, you know, the economic policies will necessarily trickle down to me and improve the condition of my life as a, uh, under a Republican administration. 
but I at least hope that we will find you know practical, pragmatic, realistic, clear-eyed solutions to this scourge that's uh, you know spilling too much blood on our streets. Danny, you know, is with me always as a memory and as a motivation in my life and these decisions that I make. And so, over the last 15 years, I've become a real advocate and writer for ideas of peace and women's rights. Uh, as expressed through Islam, I don't know where he would have fallen politically, but I do know that in my heart, I voted in part because I believe that we can have a strategic plan that actually can end the ideology of extremism within our generation, but only if we do it directly and not with this era of political correctness that we've been operating under. Asra Nirmani spoke to us from her home outside Washington, D.C. Asra is an activist, author, and journalist, and you can learn more about her on her website, asranomani.com. We thank Asra for her courage and eloquence in being the first to share her story on the listening tour. Our next storyteller, Olivia, wasn't as comfortable with sharing her full name as Asra. Yeah, definitely not my last name. <laughs> Given the tenor of the 2016 election, Olivia, like many Americans, understandably feels it's wiser to protect her anonymity. I feel like such a coward, but I'm like, eh. Yet, despite any misgivings, she was still brave enough to share her story with us today. Olivia grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Super small. And she says her vote came in a long progression, starting with a childhood where voting didn't seem like a priority in her family. I actually don't know if they ever voted. <laughs> I just know that they identified as Republican. I do not remember them ever having voted. So as I got older, it became important to me to vote. And when my son was born, I started taking him with me to vote because I wanted him to see that since it wasn't something I saw. The first time I voted, I voted Republican. I had a teacher that was running for the House of Representatives, and he expressed that he wasn't telling us. <laughs> how to register, but he was Republican, so therefore to vote for him in the primary, we needed to register as Republicans. For Olivia, a devout Christian, that wasn't a problem. I was very much a one-issue voter, and that was pro-life. I didn't think about much else when I voted, you know, and I think a lot of people experience this, that Christian and Republican seem like synonyms. You know, nobody overtly tells you in church what you're supposed to vote or what party you're supposed to be in, but it's just kind of understood. I felt it was my duty as a good Christian to go out there and vote for whoever was going to defend babies. In college, though, Olivia's viewpoint became more complicated. I started to say, well, I'm pro-life for me, and I wish everyone would be pro-life, but I don't have the right to tell anybody what to do with their body. It was, it was a very long process. And I still struggle with it. As a parent of a child with special needs, I struggle with the fact that if somebody got the diagnosis I got for my son when he was seven months old in utero, they would be encouraged to abort. When he was seven months old, we found out he had a chromosome disorder and there were all kinds of things kind of tied up in that. So he was a very hard baby. And it was so hard to get him to sleep. So I started driving around in the car a lot so the car could do some of the work of keeping him in motion until he could fall asleep. And I would listen to NPR and, and podcasts. 
it opened up my worldview. I was hearing different voices that I wasn't used to hearing. And it wasn't a confrontational conversation I was having with somebody who disagreed with me. I was just taking in a lot of information. All these new aspects of life with her special needs son added further layers to Olivia's political considerations. Because I know what a joy he is. And to, to think that somebody would say, well, he's going to have a terrible quality of life and I'm going to have a terrible quality of life. So I'm doing the right thing for this child. And he loves his life. He has a great life. So I still struggle with the stigma against disability that I feel is a little bit tied to abortion. But I also don't feel like it's my right to decide that for somebody else. As much of a joy as he is, as much as I love him, he's a lot of work. And it's a lot of extra work. And if we're going to tell women that they should have these babies and we'll help them, we need to mean it. (laughs) You know, you can't say every life is precious. And then when they need help, say, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Caring for her son, Owen, Olivia now has firsthand knowledge of the dire importance of comprehensive health care. We had been going back and forth to the children's hospital, and every time we would go to see a specialist, we had a $40 copay, which doesn't sound like much, but there were days when we would go up there and see four specialists in one day. So we're talking about $160 for specialists, gas money, eating because it was an all-day, turnpike tolls. Uh, One trip to children's hospital could cost us over $250, and we're doing that at least once a month while we were struggling to get this diagnosis. And... Once we got the diagnosis, we got a secondary insurance, and suddenly we didn't have to pay these copays, and we didn't have to pay for prescriptions, and he was getting therapies that he needed that we didn't have to pay for. And I don't know how we would even pay for these things out of pocket. And I have friends whose kids have these diagnoses who live in a different state that they can't even afford an EpiPen for their kid with a deadly food allergy. And I roll on up to the pharmacy and they hand it out to me and say, have a nice day. It costs me nothing. And I just can't imagine having to choose what services my child will get that he needs and which ones I kind of hold my breath and hope he's okay if he doesn't get this. And that was really a major turning point for me. My husband makes a decent wage and we could not afford to pay for all of these things that my complicated son needs. And that was the real um, linchpin, I think, in deciding. Just seeing how much my son needed and knowing that we couldn't provide that if we had to on our own. And so, for the first time in her life, this year, Olivia registered as a Democrat and voted for Hillary Clinton. This was the first year that I voted and felt very confidently, yes, I don't think I'm Republican anymore. Donald Trump pushed me over the edge. Words he uses and the hatred that he spews at other people, uh, I I find it very scary. (laughs) But it's not just him. There's a whole slew of issues that I was struggling with back and forth that made me think, maybe I'm Democrat after all. And it's funny how tightly I held on to that identity of Republican when I didn't think very much about it when I accepted that as my identity. When I changed my party affiliation, I went back and forth for weeks. And when I finally did it, it felt like a major relief. But it was hard to get there. Olivia took her son with her to vote in 2016, and it brought back a memory from her childhood that made the election feel especially poignant. I remembered when I was six, the teacher was putting together a book, What I Want to Be When I Grow Up. 
And I wrote about wanting to grow up to be the president of the United States. It seemed so exciting. And I remember feeling like, is that possible? Will there ever be a woman president? And so this year, when I took my son at six years old to vote for what I thought was going to be the first woman president, it was so exciting to me. I thought, what a different world he lives in than I lived in. And I just thought, this is so historic, and I'm so glad he can be here with me to see that. Obviously, it didn't turn out the way we had hoped, but it was still a really exciting moment that he was able to be there with me at six years old and see something I didn't know if I'd ever see in my lifetime. Ironically, Olivia wasn't sure if her story was what we wanted. Because I always feel like I don't really have much of a story to tell, but I could talk about my son forever. So if you need more information, just call me up with questions about Owen and I'll talk for five years. With all respect to Owen, we loved your story, Olivia. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. You've reached the end of the first episode of The Listening Tour. Our thanks again go out to both Olivia and Asra, who had this to add about our efforts. You know, we all love our world. I think we would be really well served by just assuming that people have good intentions and that they're not diabolical creatures that are living with blinders. That's what we expect for our children when they're in conversation with each other. And so I, I wish as adults we would also model that kind of civility. Uh, my, my big appeal has been for people to come to a middle path from the left and the right where we see the humanity in each other. Thank you, Azra. We truly couldn't have put it better. The Listening Tour theme music was composed and produced by Melissa Engelman. Our podcasts can be found at www.thelisteningtour.net. If you'd like to share your story, you can write us an email to stories at listeningtour.net. You can also write to us when you like our Facebook page, or you can find us on Twitter. We are at listening underscore tour. Until next time, I'm your host, Phoebe Zimmerman. Thank you for joining me on The Listening Tour.